1: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. on this episode of They Walk Among America. When people with children embark on new relationships, the children involved often require an adjustment period. This may involve adapting to new routines, becoming part of a blended family, and getting used to an entirely new dynamic. Additionally, the new adult in their lives might bring unresolved issues from their own past. At about 3 p.m. on July 8, 2009, Spartansburg Sheriff's Office deputies were dispatched to a scene following reports of a domestic incident. When first responders arrived, they were shocked to find a young child had been caught up in a situation that had nothing to do with her. The case sent shockwaves throughout the community, shedding light on the unfortunate reality that far too often, innocent children can become collateral damage in adult affairs. Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Nina Instead, and welcome to episode 85 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law and Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. Davis had been separated from her husband, 50-year-old truck driver Ricky Lee Blackwell, for about a year and a half by the summer of 2009. They had been married for 26 years and raised children together in a rural part of Spartanburg County called Ridings Road, located between Chesney and New Prospect. The couple had lived in one of a few trailers on the road next to their daughter Heather, her husband Mark, and their three young children. Their marriage broke down in 2008 after Angie began a relationship with Bobby Center. Blackwell was devastated and attempted to take his own life in a moment of despair. Blackwell's father had taken his guns and locked them in a safe box, fearing what his son would do. Angie moved out of the trailer they shared and began spending more time with Bobby Center and his children, Dustin and 8-year-old Heather Brooke, who went by Brooke. Brooke was the daughter of Bobby and Kelly Center, a recently separated couple from Duncan Street. Brooke had just finished second grade at Reedville Elementary School and was one of the only female players on the Mets District 5 Little League team. She loved wildflowers and the color yellow. Her second grade teacher, Debbie Auten, described Brooke as a precious, sweet, kind, and loving little girl. Brooke was a peacemaker in her class and got along well with everyone. She was a talented little girl with a wide vocabulary that she would incorporate into her writing assignments at school. Brooke once wrote a short story about a snow child called Snowy, a little snowman who came to life after she was upset by other children. Brooke wrote that the children were sorry they had upset Snowy and they hugged Snowy in apology. They also put more snow on Snowy when she began to melt away. That was the type of little girl Brooke Center was, compassionate beyond her years. After her parents separated, Brooke spent alternating weeks with her father, Bobby, at his home on Lightwood Knot Road, where she loved swimming in the pool. On July 8, 2009, Angie and Brooke drove to Angie's parents' house when Blackwell arrived. Blackwell was annoyed and chastised Angie for coming to Chesney all of the time, but never visiting her grandsons at their daughter Heather's home. He told her, Go over and see those boys today. Angie and Brooke made their way over to Heather's trailer at 244 Ridings Road, just next to the trailer where Angie had lived with Blackwell angie and brooke were planning on collecting angie's grandsons and taking them back to brooke's home to go swimming for the afternoon but they didn't see heather's car there so angie assumed they were out blackwell was in the area and flagged them down telling angie to go back because their grandsons were home and they were waiting for her angie turned the car around and drove back to the trailer when they pulled into the carport angie got out of the vehicle first and told Brooke to wait while she put the family dog away because she was afraid it would bite Brooke. Angie picked the dog up and turned around to see Blackwell holding Brooke in a headlock and pointing a gun at the little girl. She pleaded with him to let Brooke go, but Blackwell wouldn't listen. He told Angie, "'You've pushed this too far. You did this, and you tell me what Bobby thinks of this.'" The gun went off twice and Angie ran into Heather's trailer to call 911. She told the operator, He shot that baby. Jesus Christ, he shot the baby. Her two-year-old granddaughter was screaming, so Angie picked her up and ran out of the trailer, dropping the phone as she fled. As she reached the carport of the home she had shared with Blackwell, she heard another gunshot ring out. She then noticed Blackwell run towards her, so she rushed into a neighbor's trailer and called 911 again. Spartanburg County Sheriff's Office Deputy Bill Meyer was the first officer at the scene. It was approximately 3 p.m. when he arrived. As soon as he exited the patrol vehicle, he spotted Brooke's body on the ground next to a basketball hoop and a small paddling pool. She was lying face down beside the trailer. The back of her t-shirt was stained with blood, there was a large wound to her leg, and blood was pooling around her head. Angie's son-in-law quickly told the officer who had shot the little girl and indicated that he had gone in the direction of the woods close to his trailer. More deputies arrived at the scene and began searching the area. Once the woods were surrounded, Blackwell walked out of the tree line and refused to drop his weapon. Instead, he pointed the gun at his side and shot himself in the stomach. Blackwell crumpled to the ground where he was quickly secured and transported to hospital for treatment. The scene was shocking to both residents and the first responders. Speaking with reporters the following day, Sheriff Chuck Wright said, It's a bad scene. You have a baby who is deceased who had nothing to do with it. It's pitiful. I don't know where you can go in the mind to justify shooting a child. I don't understand how you can get so angry. Brooke's autopsy was performed by Dr. David Wren. He found nine wounds on Brooke's body, which were entry and exit wounds from the four bullets that Ricky Lee Blackwell had fired. The fatal injury was a gunshot wound to the head, but Brooke had also been shot in the back, the left leg, and the right cheek. The bullet that hit her cheek went through her neck and into her left arm. Bullets removed during the autopsy were sent for ballistics testing. They were shown to have been fired from the 357 Magnum found in Blackwell's possession after he shot himself close to the scene of the murder. When the gun was taken into evidence, it was discovered that five rounds had been fired and another round was still live in the chamber. Blackwell was recovering in Spartanburg Regional Medical Center following surgery and was in good condition. The state were already building their case against him. Seventh Circuit Solicitor and Prosecutor Trey Gowdy had consulted with the sheriff and county coroner, filing a notice to say he would be seeking the death penalty against Blackwell. Gowdy explained that he had exercised his discretion to seek society's ultimate punishment and explained the aggravating circumstances that influenced his decision. He said, Murder of a child under age 11 is a freestanding, self-sufficient circumstance that qualifies the case for the death penalty. The paradigm we have always used is threefold. The circumstances of the crime, the character of the defendant, and the impact the crime has on the community as a whole. The execution of a child shocks the conscience of this community and warrants seeking of society's ultimate punishment. The notice of intention to seek the death penalty was served to Blackwell while he was still in the hospital. The community were left reeling by what was labeled by prosecutors as the execution of a young girl. Ricky Lee Blackwell's son, Ricky Lee Jr. lived near the scene and had been driving to work when he saw all the emergency vehicles parked outside his sister's trailer. He told reporters, Seeing that little girl hurt me worse than anything in the world, I have no idea why he grabbed that young'un. He had told her how beautiful she was. He had been nice to that girl and her brother. He didn't have no right doing that. According to Ricky Jr., something must have snapped in his father, and spoke about how his dad had been suicidal soon after his mom left to be with Brooke's father. Blackwell's daughter, Heather, said she had been at the grocery store when the shooting happened outside her home. She described Blackwell as a loving and kind father who loved children and had never been violent. Heather said that her father must have snapped after all the emotional trauma he had been put through after her mother left him for another man. Heather described Brooke as a sweet girl who did not deserve to be dragged into a situation she partially blamed her mother, Angie, for. Angie said at the time, I hope he gets the death penalty for what he did to that innocent baby. She did not deserve what she got. He had no right to harm that baby at all. She was precious. I loved her and still love her with all my heart. I hope they keep him there for the rest of his life. He killed an innocent little girl brooke was the sweetest girl in the world and he smiled at me when he did it brooke's memorial service was held on sunday july 12 2009 at the stribling funeral home chapel 500 bikers had gathered outside of the funeral home when the procession arrived brooke shared her father's love for motorcycles and her pink casket was carried by the black stallion motorcycle hearse During the service, the following poem was read by Brooke's parents. She was with us for a short, brief while. She captured my heart with a tender smile. The gentle touch of her small, sweet hand made me know I was a lucky woman. Being with her from the start, she had a special place in my heart. I was there when her life began, the perfect gift from God to man. No longer can I hold her in my arms, but still I know she is safe from harm. In heaven she will know no trouble or strife, but I shall remember her all of my life. Brooke was buried at Wood Memorial Park in Duncan. Brooke's father, Bobby, spoke to News Channel 7 about his daughter. He said, She was special from the day she was born. Really, really had the whole world ahead of her. I think Brooke would have made a very, very wonderful adult as she grew older, and she was robbed of that. Everyone that knew her, she just lit their life up. She was just very special. Who would expect a beautiful little eight-year-old girl to be harmed in this way? It just doesn't make any sense to me. Her room is still just like we left it, and we intend on leaving it that way. Brooke's mother, Kelly, also spoke about the little girl. She fondly recalled how she and Brooke would read books together and how Brooke loved drawing in a little room under the stairs that she called her angel room. Kelly said, and that's where all her drawings were, where she kept all her secret stuff, you know, kids, they have their secret stuff, her room. She was to have clean, but she could do whatever she wanted in her angel room and only people she allowed could come in her angel room. Brooke loved to line up all her stuffed animals like students and play school. She would be the teacher and use a dry erase board she got for Christmas one year. Kelly was devastated by the loss of her daughter who often came to work with her at a tanning salon. He didn't just kill my baby, he hurt all her friends, Kelly said, every one of them. They came up to me and handed me blankets and cards, and it's devastating to them. They're only eight, nine years old. How do you explain that to a child? Over the days that followed, Kelly and her aunt, Terry Lynn Pulley, spoke with the authorities and domestic violence services in an effort to raise awareness of the potential dangers to children that are caught in relationship issues. Terry Lynn remarked, We want the community to know that there is information out there. We need to take this information and put it through the schools, put it through the different agencies, and let them know that this is unacceptable, that violence is unacceptable in daily living. And so many kids live with it as a daily routine. They don't know there's a different type of life. Kelly voiced her hope that a court appointed guardian would be involved in every divorce case to safeguard children even in amicable separations. Kelly said, it doesn't matter that me and my husband were separated, but my daughter was put in a situation she shouldn't have been put in. So it doesn't matter if it's domestic violence in your own home or in someone else's home. Kelly's aunt, Terry Lynn, also wished that change would come from their tragedy. She stated, I know as one individual, one person can make a difference. If we can allow Brooke to live on through the differences we make, then I believe we have allowed her life to have the most significant meaning of all.
0: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ricky
1: Lee Blackwell
0: was held at the
1: Spartanburg County Jail charged with murder and kidnapping while he waited for his trial to begin. A memorial bike ride was held a year after Brooke's murder. It was the perfect tribute for the little girl who loved to ride on her father's Harley Davidson. Brooke's mother, Kelly, said, Every time he got it out, she'd say, Daddy, can I ride it? Daddy, take me around the block. Bobby explained how his daughter would sit at the front of the bike, twisting the throttle for him and asking him to go faster. One of the men involved with organizing the memorial ride, Marty Martin, hoped to have 300 to 500 bikers attend to raise funds to pay off the $1,100 outstanding for Brooke's funeral. Marty said, It's bad enough to lose somebody like this, but it's even worse to have to pay for it. Bobby and Kelly planned to lead the ride on the Harley Davidson that Brooke loved to sit on with her father and they hoped it would become an annual event to raise funds for charity. The trial had been scheduled to begin in October 2012, but there were numerous setbacks, including mental health evaluations and motions from the defense about potential arson attacks on Ricky Lee Blackwell's family in retaliation for Brooke's death. According to the defense, two of Blackwell's relatives had had their homes firebombed. One of the homes had the words, for the girl, spray painted on the outside. At a pretrial hearing in November, 2013, the court heard how Blackwell made statements to an investigator while he was at the hospital following the shooting. Spartanburg County Sheriff's Investigator Lauren Williams testified, that Blackwell had spoken about having negative feelings following the breakdown of his marriage to Angie. He wanted to hurt Bobby, so he felt the same pain Blackwell had felt. He also admitted to shooting Brooke in Angie's presence and said it was retaliation for the breakup. Investigator Williams explained that he had asked Blackwell, tell me why it happened, tell me that you're sorry, tell me something and that was when he made the statement that the only thing he was sorry about was that he had not done a better job on himself. During the hearing, two officers testified about reading Blackwell his Miranda rights. They said he understood his rights and told them the victim's name and that he had grabbed her. Another officer told the court that Blackwell had admitted to shooting Brooke to get back at her father, Bobby due to defense concerns surrounding Blackwell's mental capacity, an Atkins hearing was held. This type of hearing is used to determine whether or not a defendant has a significant intellectual disability, which would mean they are ineligible to face the death penalty. In many states, people with an IQ below a certain level are constitutionally barred from receiving the death penalty. Dr. Kimberly Harrison, chief psychologist for the South Carolina Department of Mental Health's Forensic Evaluation Service, had evaluated Blackwell a few months prior. Her evaluation focused solely on his competency to stand trial, and she did not conduct any tests. Dr. Harrison had looked into the criminal case and Blackwell's history as part of her evaluation. She also looked into the possibility that he did have an intellectual disability the doctor told the court. In the case that there was further evidence that might suggest an intellectual disability, I would have either referred the case on to the South Carolina Department of Disabilities and Special Needs or requested a joint evaluation with DDSN and myself. Dr. Harrison said that Blackwell's school records showed he had entered the education system with a low IQ, suggesting he may have had a disability. It steadily improved with age, which would be considered a low average intellectual development as opposed to intellectual disability. He had repeated ninth grade and ranked last in his class of 113 students when he dropped out of Chesney High School in his junior year. Blackwell had been diagnosed with recurring major depressive disorder and generalized anxiety disorder, but was in remission at the time he was evaluated. Dr. Harrison cited Blackwell's job as a truck driver and forklift operator as something inconsistent with having an intellectual disability. He had lived independently and had a commercial driving license. He functioned well in life. Dr. Ginger Calloway, a clinical psychologist, evaluated Blackwell for the defense and described him as being naive-looking, like a young child, rather frightened-looking. Dr. Calloway believed that someone with an intellectual disability would still be able to do the things Blackwell had been able to do. The psychologist said, He was given the kind of jobs you would expect for somebody with a mild intellectual disability. He could do repetitive tasks. He could be taught. The court heard that Angela had managed their household and finances for the almost three decades they were together as a couple and Blackwell did not cope well on his own. Testimony was also introduced about an involuntary committal to a psychiatric unit following an incident at his home. Assistant Solicitor Russell Ghent, who was assisting with the prosecution, said, He shot a 357 Magnum through the roof of the mobile home in which he was living with his wife. It's our understanding from the records that this occurred after he had been diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma, a form of cancer. He had also tried to overdose on prescription drugs after Angie left him for Bobby. Circuit Court Judge Roger Couch eventually ruled that Blackwell did have the mental capacity to face the death penalty if convicted. After almost five years of delays, the trial finally began in March 2014. The prosecution was made up of Deputy Solicitor Derek Bulsa. Barry Barnett, and assistant solicitor Russell Ghent. Ricky Lee Blackwell was represented by Bill McGuire and Clay Allen. In the prosecution's opening statement, Bulsa told the jury that Blackwell had killed Brooke in a premeditated attack designed to enact revenge on his ex-wife's new boyfriend. It was argued he had taken the gun, a 357 Magnum, from a safe box in his father's home, and shot eight-year-old Brooke four times at close range after parking his truck in a garage. McGuire, for the defense, said they admitted that Blackwell had killed Brooke, but they asked the jury to consider his mental capacity and emotional state at the time. McGuire told the court, Angie was the air that he breathed, the sun in his universe, but she didn't stay there. She left. She took up an adulterous affair with Bobby Center." The defense attorney believed that Blackwell had been left heartbroken and suicidal, and he had been driven to despair by Angie, who continued to come to the area even though she had been asked to stay away. McGuire said that Blackwell had been described as a wonderful man, and the six seconds that he snapped did not represent who he was. Blackwell's ex-wife testified as the prosecution's key witness. Angie testified that she had been visiting her parents in Chesney when she was approached by Blackwell, whom she had been separated from for a year and nine months. He had chastised her for not visiting her grandsons and told her to go and see them. Angie said that she and Brooke had driven to her daughter Heather's home at 244 Riding's Road and, after being flagged down by Blackwell, she pulled into the driveway. Angie noticed the family dog outside, so she wanted to secure it before Brooke got out of the car. She told the court, I knew he would bite, so I turned around and I looked at her and I said, Brooke, honey, don't get out of this car until I get this dog, and she said, okay. Angie explained that she had turned around to see Blackwell holding a gun to Brooke's head. She said, and I kept telling him, Ricky, please let that baby go. Attorney Barnett asked Angie to demonstrate how Blackwell had been restraining Brooke, and he knelt on the courtroom floor as Angie put her arm around his neck and held her other hand to his head. Brooke was not struggling and looked straight ahead like she was looking into heaven. Angie told the jury, he said, you've pushed this too far, you did this, and you tell me what Bobby thinks of this. And then the gun went off, and it went off again. Angie described how Blackwell had smiled at her when he met her at her parents' house. She told the court, and I always wondered what that smile was about, but I knew what it was about when he put that gun up to her head. In closing arguments, both sides had asked the jury for the same verdict guilty. But the defense discredited Angie as a witness. It was argued she had tormented Blackwell and taken advantage of him by returning to him only to leave again and take his money and the furniture from the trailer they had shared. The trial only lasted a few days and after 20 minutes of deliberations, the jury found Blackwell guilty of murder and kidnapping. The same jury then had to sit through the trial sentencing phase and determine whether Blackwell deserved the death penalty. In the defense's opening statements, attorney McGuire told the court that Blackwell had an IQ in the 60s and an intellectual disability as well as major depressive disorder. He told the court, you're going to find that he's a simple, simple man from a simple family. McGuire said that Blackwell was under his ex-wife's influence and she had driven him to breaking point by flaunting her new relationship in front of him and being cruel to him. Prosecutor Bolsa spoke about how ironic it was that Angie had gone to move the dog because she was afraid it would bite Brooke when the real monster lurking was the defendant. Bolsa argued there was evidence that the murder was planned. He argued there was no reason to explain why Blackwell was at the scene after telling Angie to go there to collect her grandsons. He had parked his car in the garage at his old trailer close by, taken the gun from inside the car, and walked over to his daughter's home, where he took Brooke from Angie's vehicle and shot her four times. Bolsa told the jury not to be swayed by the defense's contention that Blackwell had a disability. He told them, he has no mental defect. He acted out of jealousy and anger. He acted out of evil. The prosecution called witnesses who knew Brooke to testify, including her teacher and baseball coach. Reedville Elementary School Principal Elizabeth Seema told the court, Brooke had a special spark and a special light. School nurse Amy Nunnery recalled Brooke's visits due to her asthma. Nurse Nunnery said she often visited Brooke's grave and kept some wildflowers pressed in the little girl's obituary. Nunnery told the court, not long after Brooke was buried, her dad painted her house bright yellow because that was her favorite color. It's a color that is representative of being happy and cheerful. That's the kind of child she was. There was hope because of Brooke. She was truly a good child. Brooke's second grade teacher, Miss Auton, said, She holds a special place in my heart. I really looked forward to seeing what she would do in the future." Because I felt like she had such a right future because she was such a special girl. I feel like people that didn't know her were really robbed of a chance to get to know a wonderful girl. Her baseball coach, John Sloan, explained that Brooke was the only female on the District 5 Little League team and his son's first girlfriend. He said that his son, Hunter, kept a photograph of Brooke on his nightstand. Investigator Lauren Williams, who spoke to Blackwell while in hospital, testified that he had never asked if Brooke was okay, but had spoken about his ex-wife. Blackwell had said Angie was, quote, continuously throwing up her boyfriend to him, and he said he had been having sour thoughts about how to get back at this man for breaking up his marriage. The defense then called people to testify in an attempt to spare Blackwell's life. His former employer, Gail Shook, told the court, He got along with everybody. I never had one complaint about him, not ever. Ricky is, actually, I would have to say, the most gentle, humble man that I've ever met. Ms. Shook told the court that Blackwell had loved his family, especially his wife, who had also worked at the same company at one point. She had said he had treated Angie like the most precious thing on earth, and he had been very much in anguish after she left him. When asked about her reaction to the shooting, she replied, That is not the Ricky Blackwell I know. He must have been taken to a place he'd never been before. Ricky is actually, I would have to say, the most gentle, humble man I've ever met, including my husband. Dr. Calloway testified it was her opinion that Blackwell was intellectually disabled after reviewing his medical, employment, and educational records and speaking with people who knew him. She said that his IQ was 63 and he had major depression. Other experts testified that Blackwell had been hysterical after the breakdown of his marriage and had reported hearing his wife's voice in the mornings when he woke up, only to find she wasn't beside him. Psychiatrist Donna Schwartz-Watt said, It's very hard for him to accept what happened and what he's done. He has a lot of anxiety. He has nightmares about it. He has a difficult time dealing with what he's done, and he's very sad about it. Blackwell's mother, Mildred, pleaded with the jury not to sentence her son to death when she said, I know that something happened to him this day, that he would never do that to that child because he loved children. Blackwell and Angie's daughter, Heather, also testified. She told the court that Blackwell had treated her mother like a queen and that when her mother left her father for Bobby Center, her mother changed. Heather explained that Angie started drinking, smoking, and dressing differently. She also got a Harley Davidson logo tattooed on her lower back. Heather said that her father could not cope, and he had pleaded with Angie to come home. He would come out to my house and he would just cry to me. He said, Why does she do me this way? What's wrong with her? And I'm like, Daddy, I don't know what's wrong with her. Heather explained that she had told her mother to call her before coming over because she did not want to upset her father. She also didn't want Angie to bring her new boyfriend's children to the house. Heather said, Because it hurts Daddy, and I don't want my daddy hurting no more than he's hurt. Heather claimed that her father was upset that Angie did not spend time with her grandchildren but had told people that Brooke was her perfect daughter and an angel. Blackwell's pastor, Reverend Kenneth Rice from Faith Bible Fellowship, said that he knew the couple for years. Blackwell had come to him sobbing after Angie left and would sleep on the floor and had lost weight. Jail phone call recordings between Blackwell and his grandsons were played to the jury, where he told them to be good boys because they did not want to end up where he was. In closing arguments, Prosecutor Barnett told the jury, Ricky Lee Blackwell is a coward who acted out of jealousy and anger. There is no other way to explain his actions. He took the life of an innocent child. He wanted Bobby Center to pay. He wanted to send a message to him. He could have easily grabbed Angie and took her. But no, he didn't. He took Brooke. Barnett spoke about Brooke's parents and how they had wanted her to play right field in baseball to ensure she didn't get hurt playing. He said, They didn't want that on a ball field. They just enjoyed life on it, just like this little girl did. Ricky Blackwell took that away from her, took that away from her parents. They won't see her on the ball field again, never share anything with her again. They'll never see her go on her first date. They won't see her go to her first prom. They won't see her graduate from high school. How much would they pay to have one phone call to send one piece of mail to her? Brooke's tragic death didn't just affect her family. It affected the school she attended and the community she lived in. I hope people look at today's verdict and realize crimes against children will not be tolerated. The defense spoke about Blackwell's remorse and his character. Blackwell's solicitor, Bill McGuire, told the jury that he had no previous convictions and they could not find a single person who spoke badly about him. McGuire said, If he had the opportunity to step into a time machine, knowing that his death was the fuel used to bring Brooke back, he'd open and shut the door. But we can't. We can't bring her back. So now what do we do? After six hours of deliberations, the jury recommended the death penalty. The presiding judge agreed with the recommendation and pronounced the sentence. Despite being sentenced to death in 2014, appeals have delayed the sentence being carried out. In 2016, Brooke's mother, Kelly Center, spoke to the Herald Journal about the road ahead of them as appeals could take 15 to 20 years to exhaust. She also mentioned the fact that lethal injection drugs were not available in South Carolina at the time. She stated, We started five years later than what you would normally start, so you're looking at 25 years maybe, and then, with no drug, what can you do? Blackwell had the opportunity to opt for death by electrocution, but he could not be forced to make that choice. Kelly stated, He may never die like he's supposed to. My child didn't get appeals, and she didn't get a chance to do anything different, and he's had all these chances. On top of that, they say if he gets to die, what are the chances? Because we don't have the drug that he's going to die. 64-year-old Ricky Lee Blackwell remains on death row in the South Carolina Department of Corrections. This episode was researched and written by Eileen McFarlane. Editing and scoring by Corey Hiltman. Script editing, additional writing, and production direction by Rosanna and Benjamin Fitton. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law & Crime podcast network, please visit Lawncrime.com podcasts. This has been The Walk Among America. Thank you for listening and please be safe.